0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. These are all wildly big questions. I had to read them three or four times to even start grasping them. And every one is tremendously complex. Just like every other question or challenge that makes it to the Oval Office, there are no simple answers here. Easy questions with simple answers never make it to the president's desk. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. Will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at Explorers.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplorers.com. If you haven't already listened to the story of my first experience with presidential-level decision-making, you might want to have a listen to episode 67, where I tell about being catapulted into a global war game put on by the U.S. Navy's War College. Some 30 years later, I find myself immersed in that challenge again, this time tasked with advising the president on ways that science and technology can help solve some of the big problems facing the country. I left my last full-time gig in 2017. Running NOAA, the United States' preeminent ocean and climate agency, was a huge, complex, and generally fun job, but one that demanded full intensity and left me pretty tired after four years. I planned to slow down when I left the post, maybe travel some, generally enjoy the flexibility that comes with retirement, and I'd even maybe have time to get a dog. I did a pretty good job of this for several years, steadily improving at saying no to claims of my time that just didn't really inspire me, and eventually getting my pup. Then I got a voicemail from a longtime friend, Maria Zuber, asking me to call her back. This was at the height of the pandemic, sometime around June of 2021. I presumed it would be a social call and was looking forward to catching up on all her news. Maria is the vice president for research at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I was eager to ask her about her recent appointment by President Biden to be co-chair of PCAST, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, a big and very prestigious role for scientists in America. So I was completely surprised when Maria opened with, so I'm calling on behalf of the White House. I knew right away this was no social call. Nobody uses those words without official White House permission. If you hear on behalf of the White House, you know you are essentially hearing from the president himself. And I knew this meant Maria was calling to ask me to take on another presidential appointment. That would spell disaster for my relax and have fun retirement plan. My many years in Washington had also taught me that White House jobs may bring great prestige and some cool perks, but they always come with crazy long hours and lots of grueling labor. I had had my fill of all that, which meant I had to make sure I didn't let Maria make the ask, because in my world, when the president himself asks you specifically to serve your country, you just don't say no. So I needed to stop any such talk before it even began. No, 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 no. I am absolutely not moving back to Washington, period, I said firmly. There, that should end it. You don't have to, she replied. She replied. So I wasn't out of the woods. Even worse, she had pushed my curiosity button. So of course I asked, then what's this about? And that's how I learned that President Biden wanted me to serve on his Presidential Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. And I was suddenly glad I had not escaped Maria's snare. So why, after all my worry, was I suddenly so eager? A couple of things make PCAST special to me. It's one of the most prestigious of all the advisory bodies in the United States government, and also the most impactful. It was created decades ago to be a source of independent external advice for the president, one that's not beholden to any agency. It only tackles challenges the president himself wants answers to and reports directly to him, often in person. That means there's no politically motivated filtering or massaging that waters down its advice. Historically, it's been populated with some of the country's most accomplished and respected academics and business leaders, not political operatives or people pushing personal agendas. The result of all of that is PCAST has never been seen as a political instrument. Its reports and recommendations carry across elections and administrations. So to me, it represented an opportunity to bring some of my best work to some of the biggest questions affecting the future of my country all without moving to Washington or going back into the daily grind. On top of all that, the invitation was really a surprise. I've had a limited time at academia and a unique, some would say even oddball career path, so I had long presumed I'd never be in the running for a PCAST appointment. So I accepted the nomination and slogged through all the paperwork, and my 29 new colleagues and I took the oath of office at the end of September. The PCAST I joined is a very eclectic bunch, with members including physicists, molecular biologists, computer scientists, artificial intelligence experts, economists, business and foundation leaders, social scientists, engineers, serial entrepreneurs, two former cabinet secretaries, and a Nobel laureate. This diversity is what gives us the breadth of expertise needed to tackle a wide array of topics. The president tasked us with five huge ones in a memo he sent a few days before his inauguration. Here they are in his own words. What can we learn from the pandemic about what is possible or what ought to be possible to address the widest range of needs related to our public health? How can breakthroughs in science and technology create powerful new solutions to address climate change, propelling market-driven change, jump-starting economic growth, improving health, and growing jobs, especially in communities that have been left behind? How can the United States ensure that it is the world leader in the technologies and industries of the future that will be critical to our economic prosperity and national security, especially in competition with China? How can we guarantee that the fruits of science and technology are fully shared across America and among all Americans? And finally, How can we ensure the long-term health of science and technology in our nation? These are all wildly big questions. I had to read them three or four times to even start grasping them. And every one is tremendously complex. Just like every other question or challenge that makes it to the Oval Office, there are no simple answers here. Easy questions with simple answers never make it to the president's desk. They get handled by cabinet officials or White House staff or or delegated down to an agency. In PCAST, we assign the same, only the president lens, to the issues we tackle, working hard to make sure we get at the nub of a problem and recommend actions he has the authority to order agencies to carry out. We started working right after we were sworn in, meeting virtually at first to get the wheels turning. Zoom calls are far from ideal, as we all know, especially for a newly formed group, but these sessions let us establish our working processes and start digging into those five big challenges. I'm currently leading a small group on wildfires that offers a good illustration of how we go about this work. My co-lead is a professor of aeronautical engineering from Caltech, the famous California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California. In a nutshell, we dig into what knowledgeable experts have written on these topics, and consult with experts across academia, business, and the federal agencies. PCAST's White House from Premature lets us get to anybody of any rank, knowing they'll always be delighted and even honored to talk with us. We have a small support staff of seasoned science, tech, and policy experts that helps us coordinate all this outreach, handles meeting logistics, and engages support contractors for deeper research when we need it. So, about wildfires. If you've followed the news in the past few years, you know that the combination of a changing climate, expanding urban areas, and outdated concepts of forest and fire management have turned wildfires from a seasonal to a year-round problem globally, with more and more blazes exploding to megafire scale. I remember how terrifying it was as a child growing up in Southern California to see the ridgelines above our valley glowing orange at night as fires raged there. Really large wildfires were a pretty rare occurrence back then, but no longer. More and more wildfires nowadays reach unimaginable size and intensity, threatening lives, property, and the infrastructure that our communities and economies rely on. I saw such a megafire once flying over northeastern Australia one night on my first space shuttle mission in 1984, I was puzzled by huge long arcs on the ground below me. It took me a while to realize they probably marked the active front of a huge bushfire. When you're traveling at five miles a second, you know that any feature on the ground beneath you that goes on for even a minute is really huge. The news feeds confirmed my bushfire interpretation when we returned to Earth a week later. So how do you even start to tackle a big and complex issue like wildfire? We thought the initial action chain would be a good place to start. The sequence of actions involved when a fire has been ignited, starting with detecting it, to alerting and mobilizing responders, and finally putting it out. Federal agencies and investments have a big role to play in this arena, unlike in forest management, where there's a complex web of relationships and decisions between states and cities, private citizens, and the federal government. Progress there is more dependent on policy and politics than science and technology. And the question we kept front and center was, where in this action sequence could better or different science and technology make an improvement? Our first outreach was to an expert on loan to the White House Office of Science and Technology, PCAST's own home base, Kate Dargan is a former firefighter and, and head of California's Fire Response Outfit, known as CAL FIRE. Kate helped us understand how wildfires are currently detected and responded to initially, where there are gaps and delays, and who some of the key players are nowadays. And she confirmed that PCAST could probably play a helpful role here. On the detection problem, many of our working group members were familiar with a 1990s project called MEDEA, That explored how data from military and intelligence satellites could help address a variety of civilian scientific data needs. As we dug further, we discovered that Medea's work had produced a pilot project about wildfire detection and tracking. We hopped on a Zoom with several Medea alumni to learn more about the project and what had become of it. This led us in turn to the guy who leads science and technology efforts for the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho. This guy, Sean is his name, told us that a version of the program was still running and was very useful to firefighters on the ground. Wildland firefighters, it turns out, have a mantra, know where your fire is at all times. That's what this program helps with. There are satellites overhead that have a very wide field of view, meaning they can watch a large area all at once, and sensors that can detect quite small fires and watch them continuously sending fresh data out to fire command posts every 10 to 15 minutes. We discovered several areas where it seemed like PCAST could weigh in usefully, such as addressing concerns that the program would be shut down due to clashing agency priorities, refining and automating the current cumbersome, partially manual workflow, and using the archive of data collected over the years to improve wildfire science and modeling. Our working group started its efforts back in early October, and we're coming to the final stages, having talked or met with dozens of experts from half a dozen federal agencies, universities, and private foundations, and read countless scientific papers. So at this point, you're probably wondering, what exactly does this all turn into? Our plan is to write what's called a letter report, meaning a document around 10 pages long that sets out the context for the problem lays out our key findings, and proposes specific actions the president could direct. And just who does a president give direction to and how? Well, you can bet it's not just by picking up the phone and calling someone in an agency and saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. The main tools at his disposal are executive orders and various flavors of presidential directives. None of these overrides existing laws the Congress has passed, and none of them tells the agency to ignore those laws So PCAST also has to dig a bit into the legislative mandates, defining each agency's job and dictating how they should or may not go about it. Even the budget that Congress approves for an agency every year has the force of law. So before we can write a recommendation, we also need to understand how much money the agency has been given and whether the Congress has limited or specified the ways that has to be used. The president's direct reports are the members of his cabinet, and in a few cases, the heads of independent agencies. So PCAST typically recommends he directs his orders to those folks, a cabinet secretary, or just states more generally what an agency ought to do, leaving it to the president and his staff to figure out the best path. Here's a recent example of how this plays out across administrations and why I believe the work is genuinely worthwhile. PCAST issued a report in 2015 on hearing aids. Over half the population, ages 70 to 79 in the United States, have trouble hearing. That number goes up to 80% in even older people. Hearing loss contributes to isolation, depression, dementia, and falls. So this is a serious national problem. Get a hearing aid seems an easy solution. But they were really expensive back then, easily over $5,000 a pair. So that wasn't an option for a lot of folks. PCAST dug into why the price was such a huge barrier for so many people and found a couple of factors. First, our national retiree insurance program, Medicare, didn't cover hearing aid fitting or purchase. Second, the market wasn't working well. Hearing aids are simple devices compared to cell phones, but phone costs hundreds, not thousands of dollars the innovation that drove cell phone price and performance wasn't happening in the hearing aid market, in part because just a half a dozen companies controlled the market and didn't really need to innovate. Finally, the channels from the producers to consumers were few and really hard to navigate, so the real costs were often concealed in bundled prices that included huge markups. Some of the cost and markup was caused by needless regulation, and some by the companies using their dominant position to jack up the price, the usual charge-what-the-market-will-bear game, in a tight market with captive consumers who really need what you produce. The report recapped all of this in just seven pages, then made four recommendations. To open up the market by changing a few regulations, to include hearing aids and their fitting in Medicare coverage, to reclassify hearing aids as discretionary consumer aids, more like eyeglasses or contact lens than certified medical equipment, and to work with Congress to pass legislation that would change Federal Trade Commission rules so that consumers had access to and control over their hearing data. President Obama directed the agencies involved to make the changes that did not need congressional approval. That work continued after the 2016 election, and the Medicare Hearing Aid Coverage Act of 2021 completed the story enacting the insurance coverage provisions. Pretty great impact for a report that was just 12 pages long, counting the bibliography and appendices. We hope our wildfire report has a similarly positive impact. Our recommendations will be very different, of course. They'll focus mainly on technologies to improve the situational awareness of fire crews, to help them know where the active fire line is, where it's moving next, and how to avoid extreme danger or technologies that can boost their energy and endurance, like robotics. None of the improvements we aim to foster will happen overnight, of course. Change always takes time, and the more complicated the problem and the people puzzles, the longer the road. But many of life's most worthy endeavors take time to achieve. You just can't tackle them with an I-want-it-now mindset or with the expectation that you'll get the credit when the payoff finally comes. What you get instead is the satisfaction of knowing that you've made a difference in people's lives, both today and tomorrow. And for explorers like us, the journey and the discoveries and what they can mean for humankind, well, that's what it's all about. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.